Well, I warned you, didn't I? As we worked our way through this book of 1 Corinthians, we'll come across passages that are controversial and maybe difficult for us to uh, get a hold of. And this is one of them. Uh, it's one of the advantages of uh, preaching through books is that we can't, um, we can't avoid these difficult passages. We have to be confronted with uh, what God is saying to us. Uh, and to um, see how they apply to us today. Let's pray as we come to this passage. Father, we ask for your help, your guidance by your Holy Spirit to give us understanding, uh, to open our eyes to see the truth and the beauty of uh, your truth and of the Gospel of our Lord Jesus, of the wisdom of the cross uh, that is uh, in your word. So we commit this time to you and ask for your guidance in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's a controversial passage for a number of reasons. Firstly, it says some things that are seen to be offensive today, uh, just by reading on face value. Uh, But not only that, uh, the passage itself, the way it's structured, is a little bit tricky to interpret. Uh, most Bible scholars and commentators will say this is the, the, the hardest passage in 1 Corinthians to understand exactly the, the flow of Paul's logic. Uh, what does he mean when he says because of the angels? Uh, when is he using head literally and when is he using it symbolically? And other other difficulties. Uh, so I'm not going to presume to uh, to fully uh, explain every detail of this passage uh, more than what the Bible scholars and commentators are able to do. But I I think we will be able to see the heart of what Paul is saying here. This is the beginning of a new section in 1 Corinthians. Up to now, he's been talking about how the wisdom of Christ crucified is to be displayed in our personal lives and in our relationships. Now, in chapters 11 to 14, he moves to how we are to conduct ourselves whenever we gather as the church. And this is marked by his use of this word, traditions. It's a word that means something that is passed down from Uh, person to person or generation to generation. Uh, Specifically, it was a word that referred to the way of doing things uh, and especially in the context of how we worship God and how we um, display our devotion to him. The way we operate in the setting of corporate worship is something that should reflect the character of God. And one of these traditions that Paul passed down to the Corinthians was this practice of women covering their heads in public worship. And he commends them because he said it's a tradition that they've maintained. But it may be that some of them question, why why do we do this? And so it needed a bit more clarification, a bit more of a biblical theological understanding of why Paul said this is an important tradition for you Corinthians to hold on to. 
In order for us to grasp, though, uh, what this passage is saying, it's helpful for us to understand a bit more of the cultural and historical setting. The first thing for us to know is that in first century Roman society and Greek and most ancient societies, the norm was for women to cover their heads whenever they went out in public. Now, this was a custom that wasn't, wasn't about submission or subjection or inferiority. It was actually about dignity. Her head covering would shield her from the unwanted and inappropriate gaze of other men. Uh, It was a symbol of honour. It was a sign of the sanctity and of the privacy of her life and of her family life. Now, there were two scenarios in which a woman would go out in public without her head covered. The first would be if she wanted to demonstrate that she had rejected her role as a wife, as a mother, and that she was now available in a sexual way to any other man. There was a small trend at this time in the first century for women and even prominent women to uncover their heads in a deliberate act of sexual provocation. They were uh, rejecting the standards of the day and it was a a sign of uh, some of the the ongoing uh, decline of morality in Greek and Roman culture of the time. Some Some women would also deliberately cut off their hair or cut their hair short in order to blur gender distinctions And often it was a sign that they had adopted a same-sex relationship. So, covering her head for a woman would be a mark of honour, a mark of dignity. An uncovered head in public would bring shame, both upon her and upon her husband and her family. The second scenario in which a woman would be outside in public with an uncovered head was if she was a slave. Female slaves would have their heads forcibly shaved as a way of humiliating them, of robbing them of their dignity, not only by removing something that was a sign of her femininity, but also making sure that the the brand or the tattoo that they would have had on their head that was a mark that they were a slave, that would have been a mark of ownership of whoever owned her, that that wasn't covered up, that people could see that she was a slave. Now we know for a fact that many of the first century Christians were slaves. The Gospel had a special appeal to slaves Slaves who had absolutely nothing in this world, not even a sense of personhood in this world. Christ gave them personhood. He gave them a hope of a new world in which they will be completely free. And the first century churches were a mixture of free citizens and slaves. 
The second uh, cultural historical background thing that we need to know is that in most places of worship, of idol worship in Corinth, it was extremely rare for men and women to be worshipping together. And when they were together, the women did not participate fully in the rituals that took place. The temples in the city were for men. There were other temples on the outside, on the fringes, that were reserved for the women. So Christians would have caused a bit of a stir among their neighbours when they gathered for worship with men and women together and with men and women both participating fully in that worship. As they both spoke to pray and to prophesy. In fact, that, that practice led to some rumours being spread that Christians were engaging in sexual immorality whenever they met because there were men and women together in the same place. So Christians then, as today, lived in a cultural tension We're in the world, but we don't belong to the world. We function in the world, we we relate to and work with those in the world, yet we know that our citizenship isn't in the world, it's in the kingdom of God. We're aliens, we're strangers, we're passers-by in this world and we're ambassadors of the kingdom of God that eventually will fully break in and take over the kingdoms of the world. What that means is on one hand, because we live in the world, we will in some ways appear similar to the world. When, when there are things in the culture that aren't harmful or contradictory to our faith or may actually even be helpful, we're free to express those things. When there are aspects of culture that are a result of the creational design, those things that are good about the world and humanity that haven't been totally eradicated or distorted by sin, then we can participate and celebrate them. On the other hand, because we're not of the world, in other ways we will be countercultural. When there are things in our culture that are immoral or idolatrous or contradictory to the gospel, So we refuse to participate, we refuse to celebrate those things and instead we may do things in a way that will seem silly or maybe even scandalous to the world. And we saw this, didn't we, in chapters 8 to 10 with this matter of eating meat. We can eat food that God created and we can eat it in the context of hospitality and that's good. You don't have to be a Christian to enjoy food and hospitality. It's a good thing. It's not only good but it's even commendable. If we celebrate this goodness of creation and something that our culture around us also celebrates. But as soon as that cultural expression crosses a line where it becomes idolatrous or immoral or an act of worship to a false god or something that undermines the gospel itself, then we must go against the grain of the culture. 
We must maintain our distinctiveness as God's holy people. That tension is here in this passage on that, the matter of men and women in the church. How were they to maintain their countercultural expression of the full dignity and the equal status of men and women before God by participating in worship together, but in a way that didn't cause unnecessary scandal? Well, the solution was to uphold a cultural expression that displayed God's good design, the distinction between male and female, and the different different roles that flowed out of that distinction. But it's not just about not causing offence to outsiders or observers or visitors, because Paul bases his argument not from culture, but from scripture. He talks about the relationships that God has established. Now, I'm sure that many of you may struggle with this verse because at first glance it seems to be setting up this hierarchy of authority with God at the top, men at the middle and women at the bottom as if women are somehow inferior to men as men are to Christ. Now we automatically read it this way because of our secular modern narratives that tell us that the Bible is the product of a culture that oppresses and subjugates women, where women are expected to see themselves as inferior and to serve men. We automatically see authority as privilege and submission as humiliation. That's because that's the way it normally operates in this world. Now, the world's solution to uh, abusive authority and submission, humiliating submission, is that the oppressed must rise up and fight those in authority, that they should overthrow them, that they should take their place. Now, almost without exception, whenever that's happened, the old unequal regime has been replaced with a new unequal regime where the formerly oppressed become the new oppressors. However, in the kingdom of God, the solution is the opposite. Rather than those who are in authority being arrogant and needing to be overthrown by their oppressors, they should be seen, they should be viewing their authority as a mandate to serve, to come on the same level of those they have authority over in order to lift those people up and to give them full dignity. See how this is true when we look at that simple statement at the end of the verse, the head of Christ is God. Remember what we heard back in chapter 8, yet for us there is one God the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, 
and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. God the Father has ultimate primacy and authority over creation because it's from him that all things, including us, exist. That's why in the Apostles' Creed we say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. But see how the Father has bestowed upon his Son a glory and an authority over creation so that it is through him that all things exist. See how there's this perfect unity in that both the Father and the Son have authority over creation but there's a distinction in how that authority is expressed. Creation comes from the Father through the Son. The Father's authority comes because he's the source of everything that exists. Jesus' authority is given to him by the Father on the basis of his obedience, entering this world, taking on human nature, going to the cross to redeem sinners and then being raised up by the Father, seated at his right hand and given every uh, name that is above every name. So, the head of Christ, being God, has nothing to do with Christ being pushed down or forced to submit or being inferior in status to the Father. Rather, it's about the Father so loving and honouring the Son that he lifts him up and gives him glory and honour so that every creature in heaven and earth will bow the knee and exalt him and worship him. In God's kingdom, to be under authority means to be given authority. On one occasion, Jesus was asked to go to the home of a Roman centurion his servant was close to death. He went, but he was stopped before he got there. The centurion said, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servants, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marvelled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. The centurion understood that in order for him to have authority over his soldiers, he needed to be under a greater authority. His own commanding officers and ultimately the Roman emperor himself. So, in order for Jesus to have authority to heal his servant, that must mean he was also under a great, greater authority, that of God his Father. The use of the word head, then, in this passage, 
brings out this perfect combination. Um, Go back to verse 3 still. This perfect combination of authority and unity. Paul could have used a different word here, a word that just simply meant raw authority. But instead he uses this metaphor of the head. A head which united to the body gives the body its life but enables the body to function and all of its parts to work together in unity. He'll use the same metaphor a bit later when he talks about the gifts of the spirit. We are one body in Christ made up of different parts and they all work together as we recognise Christ as our head. So what does this all mean then for the statement, the head of every woman is man? Well, clearly not that women are to be pushed down and forced to submit, but that men in their God-given role of leadership are to use their leadership to serve, to take the members of the body, including women, and to lift them up so they can know the full dignity of being a redeemed child of God, where every member in the church is equal in status before God, even as they fulfil different roles and functions. The same idea is expressed here in verses 7 to 9. Again, when we read this with our First, uh, 21st century secular goggles on, we may jump to the conclusion that Paul's implying that women are somehow inferior to men because uh, he doesn't say that women are made in the image of God and that they are the glory of man. In fact, Paul's arguing the opposite to what we assume he's saying because of our 21st century thinking. He's stressing here the relationship between men and women, uh, not so much the relationship of women to God. The, The logical flow of the sentence would have been, man is the image and glory of God, but woman is the image and glory of man. But he deliberately leaves out image because he's emphasising that the status of women being in the image of God doesn't come from them being made from man. The image of God is something given directly by God to every human being. It's not derived from another human being. But there is something that was given to the woman by virtue of the fact that she was made from the man and that's glory. If she'd received the image of God from the man, that would make her inferior. That would mean she could only actually relate to God through the man. But receiving glory from the man actually emphasises their unity and their equality. The glory of the man and the glory of the woman are the same glory. Because one is made from the other, their glory is the same. They wouldn't have had the same glory if they were just made individually and separately, each from the dust. So this is the woman's glory that 
she was made both from the man and for the man so that humanity might be whole, so that together we can fulfil our creational mandate. This woman's creation from the man brought a completion to humanity. It made humanity good. Remember, God said it is not good that the man should be alone. When the woman was created and they shared that glory, God looked at everything and he said, it is very good. So in creation there's distinction and there's unity. There's headship in which the man's primary role is taking on that responsibility of leadership demonstrated by the fact that he made the man first, not the woman, not the other way round. But there's unity, there's mutual dependence as we see in verse 11 where our status before God is the same. The key outworking then of this creational design is verse 10 and this is really the key verse of this passage. This is a verse that uh, some have just taken and made into a legalistic rule. Women, cover your heads whenever you come to church. Why? Well, just because the Bible says. Or it's been looked at and said, well, that was a cultural thing that's no longer relevant to us and so this whole passage is then ignored. In Christ, God's good design for us as human beings is restored and the church should be a reflection of this design in which male and female are distinct but there's a joint participation in worship Both men and women can come and stand before God. In first century Corinth where women and men were separated in worship, where women were not allowed to participate fully in the rituals or to be involved in key activities like prayer and prophecy, the the pagans also practised prayer and prophecy. Christ's church was to be different. Women were enabled and authorised to pray and prophesy alongside men. So this symbol of authority on her head wasn't a symbol that said, I am under the authority of my husband. It actually said, I am authorised to be a full member of the body of Christ. I am authorised to pray and prophesy with freedom and dignity. So being told to cover their heads in public worship was a liberating thing, not an oppressive thing for a first century woman. Her head covering would have removed any implication to outsiders that she was immoral or or shameful. It would have said to them she actually has honour and dignity in this place. If this woman was a slave, if she'd been forced to have her head shaved and to go about in public shamefully with her head uncovered, 
when she came into the gathering of her brothers and sisters in Christ, she had authority to cover her head, to cover her shaved head, to hide all of the signs of her worldly slavery and to operate in the full dignity of a free woman. Now, 2,000 years later in Australia, we face a curious irony where our situation is almost reversed in terms of culture. Because Christianity has been the main faith for centuries, it's accepted that it's normal for men and women to go to church together, to worship together, to each make contributions to the life of the body. It's because of the Christian faith that the freedom of men and women to worship together is just an assumed value in our culture. But our society is increasingly rejecting belief in the biblical God as revealed in Jesus. And so while we've hung on to the idea, the biblical idea of men and women being equal, because that's a good value that we like, we're rejecting the idea that God intentionally created us male and female because that idea runs against our desire to express our sexuality in any way we choose. So we want to hang on to what we like from the Christian faith and to throw out anything we don't like all so that we can justify doing what's right in our own eyes. So instead of highlighting the good distinction between male and female, the narrative today is that gender is just a social construction. We're told that highlighting the differences between men and women or suggesting the idea that men and women have different but equally important roles is seen as wrong or bigoted. Our younger generation, and I experienced this firsthand in the uni ministry, our younger generation are being told that they can choose to identify as any gender they want or even no gender, whatever they feel like. Not only that, they're being told that the community not only has to accept their choice but should celebrate it. They're being told that regardless of what your physical body or your biology says, you can identify as whatever you like, all in the name of freedom and love. So the Corinthians lived in a culture where the distinction between men and women was very clear and they were told you, can, you need to practice that and acknowledge that because that's God's good design. Uh, we live in a culture where that gender distinction is being blurred. But the application for us today is the same as it was for the Corinthians then. Uh, Not that women should cover their heads in church. I don't see any hats here this morning. And uh, Rachel didn't cover her head when she led us in prayer. That was the culturally appropriate response in first century Corinth. Our culture no longer says that wearing a hat gives a woman dignity or that it highlights the distinction between 
male and female. It's the principle behind that application, though, that remains the same. We as a church are called to reflect the good creational design of God that we've been restored to in Christ, both as an expression of our liberty in Christ today and in in anticipation of the new creation. So we should continue to show the good design of men and women, equal in glory as God's image bearers, equal in their standing and status before the Father as we're clothed in Christ's righteousness. That's what Paul means when he said there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Just as we consider it unthinkable to discriminate between people based on race or nationality or social status, so too any unhelpful barriers that denigrate a person because of their gender should also be unthinkable amongst God's people. So we are to reflect the equal dignity of men and women and we're also to reflect the glory of our differences as men and women, perfectly complementing one another and not allowing the culture of the day to cause us to blur the differences or to take on board the thinking of the world that equality in dignity and worth is only going to be found when men and women do exactly the same things. That kind of thinking that says I can only be equal to you if I can take on my right to do the same role as you, that's a thinking that's based on works, not on grace. It assumes that a person's worth is in what they do, not in who they are. Grace says, you and I are equal because in Christ we are children of the Father. So I can celebrate our differences in roles and in functions, knowing that together we display the glory of God. We reflect the fact that God himself is three persons in one God. In God himself there is unity in diversity. Just as the Father, the Son and the Spirit all have different and distinct roles in creation and in salvation, yet they are one in essence, they are one in their status as God, well so too humanity as male and female operate differently, yet in our essence we are one humanity. I hope that what we've seen in this passage today has made us feel a bit uncomfortable. And that's what the Word of God is supposed to do. It's supposed to stir us up, to challenge our assumptions, to force ourselves to ask ourselves how much of what I think is shaped by the culture of the day and how much is shaped by the Word of God. If you'd assume that this passage simply teaches a legalistic 
and outdated rule that women must wear hats in church as a sign of their submissiveness to their husbands, then I hope that assumption's been challenged. That assumption has led to church systems both where women have been oppressed and restricted in their freedom to worship God but also where the passage, as I said, has just been completely ignored because it's been assumed it's a cultural thing that's no longer relevant to us today. On the other hand, if you've assumed that everything we're hearing in the world about gender and male and female and our various roles can just be taken on board without question, then I hope that assumption's also been challenged. We mustn't be fearful of being seen as countercultural. Even if that means at times the world says that we're being bigots or we're being hateful. If something of the glory of God is displayed in gender differences, then we need to hold on to those things. If we're to maintain a constant and a consistent witness to the gospel. So only when we live in God's creational design, restored to us in Christ, that we'll be able to do that. Let's pray.